We are about to do the final two Mishnas of chapter two. We're going to do both of them today. Both of them are authored by Rabbi Tarfon. More about him in a second. Uh, there's, I think, a, a theme strung between these two Mishnas, so I thought it was appropriate to do them both at the same time. We'll read it quickly, and then we'll go through a little bit of Rabbi Tarfon's character, and then we'll try to dig into his teachings. Rabbi Tarfon Omer. Rabbi Tarfon says, Hayom Katzer. The day is short. Vahamlacha Meruba. But the task is substantial. Vahapolim atzelim. The laborers are lazy. Vahaschar harbe. The wage is great. Ubal habayis dochet. And the master of the house is pressing. That's, that's the first teaching. The second teaching, Hu haya omer, he would say, Lo ligmar, it's not your responsibility to finish the task, yet, Velo ataben chormli batalmimeno, you are not free to withdraw from it. Im lamadata Torah harbei, if you studied a lot of Torah, no slim lechasechar harbei, they will give you a lot of reward. And trustworthy is your employer to pay you the wage of your labor. But be aware that the giving of reward for the righteous will be in the future time to come. That's Rabbi Tarfon's teaching. So who was Rabbi Tarfon? Rabbi Tarfon, we have not seen him yet, but he too was a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He was a little bit older than the rest of the sages that we've had uh, previously. Uh, he was a student also of Rabbi Gamliel Hazakain. There's two Rabbi Gamliels. One was the grandfather, one was the grandson. He was a student of the grandfather, the original Rabbi Gamliel, known as Rabbi Gamliel the Elder. He was a colleague of Rabbi Akiva, but also his mentor. Uh, he was the rabbi of a major Jewish city, the city of Lud. And he too appears at this transition period uh, after the temple's destroyed, the Sanhedrin seized herring capital crime cases already in his time, uh, which happened 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple. Uh, so for example, there's an a, a important episode that really I think is reflective of the time that happened with Rabbi Tarfon. The Talmud says that the great rabbis were hiding in an attic in the city of Lud, the city where he was the rabbi. And Rabbi Tarfon and all the elders were hiding in this one person, his name was Nitza, in his attic in the city of Lud they were hiding. Why were they hiding from? It's quite likely that the Romans were on a rampage. They were looking for rabbis to assassinate. That happened not infrequently. And the Talmud says that there was an episode where the rabbis are hiding in the attic. And what do rabbis in attics do? Well, they discuss Torah matters. So the Talmud tells us two two episodes in two different places in the Talmud where the in this convention that happened in the attic, what the discussion was. So in the in the book of Kiddushin on page 40b, we read the following. Rabbi Tarfon and the elders were sitting in the attic of the house of Nitza in the city of Lud, and the question was posed before them. What is greater, Torah study or actions of mitzvos? If someone can only do one, either study Torah or do mitzvos, which one is preferable? What an interesting question. Rabbi Tarfon 
he answers, it's better to do mitzvos. That's preferable. Comes along Rabbi Akiva and says, no, it's better to study Torah. And eventually they discuss the issue and a consensus emerges. It is greater to study Torah because Torah study effectuates actions of mitzvos. You have one, you get the other as well. Just an interesting dilemma here that we see uh, was posed and was resolved uh, with the sages hiding out in the attic. Uh, there's another episode, which I again is reflective of the times, where the Talmud is talking about capital punishment cases. So we know that there are some transgressions in a Jewish court of law, which are capital crime cases. In America, for example, there's the only thing that could uh, warrant capital punishment is, I believe, murder and treason. Uh, those are the only two things that could give someone a ruling of capital punishment. In the Jewish court of law, it's quite more comprehensive. There's many, many, many more themes, many more transgressions that could warrant a capital crime punishment. However, says the Talmud, because the court is tasked with trying to find acquittal, because their objective in interrogating the witnesses, in examining the evidence, is about trying to find a way to give a not guilty verdict. Therefore, a Jewish court of law will find someone guilty and actually execute someone once every seven years, according to one opinion. According to the second opinion, once every 70 years. It's so vanishingly rare that it's almost never happened, almost never happens. Even though there's so many transgressions that carry with it the weight of Capital punishment, in actuality, happened very rarely. Comes along Rabbi Tarfon and says the following. He says, together with Rabbi Tiva, they were colleagues and, uh, and friends and study partners. Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Tiva says, if we were part of the Sanhedrin, if we were present at the time when the Sanhedrin ruled on capital crime cases, no one would ever be executed. Because we would be so skilled at trying to find a rationale for acquittal, in every case feasible, we would be able to find a way to, to rule the defendant as not guilty. Come along the rabbis and say, well, if you were on the court, you would increase murders because you would remove the fear, the you'd remove the deterrent, people wouldn't be scared of doing murder because Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Tarfan will find us innocent or find us not guilty. Anyhow, but that just shows they're arriving, he's existing at a time where the court is no longer ruling in capital punishment. The Senate is still active. It's going to be active another hundreds of, hundreds of, for hundreds uh, more years, but they are no longer ruling in capital crime cases. And he was such a skillful scholar that him together with Robert Hiva would be able to find a loophole in every single case possible where they would rule the defendant not guilty. Rabbi Tarifan was also a Kohen, meaning that he was able to get all the Kohanic benefits uh, the Talmud says that when he would uh, be the Kohen at a firstborn redemption ceremony, he would return the five coins. Uh, in addition, there was one year, it was a drought. This is an interesting story. There was a drought, so there's a lack of food, but the Kohen always has plenty of food because a certain portion of the co- uh, of all produce goes to the Kohen, the Truma portion. But if someone's not a Kohen, they can't get it. 
So you have this asymmetry where there's a lot of food available, but most people can't eat it and people are starving. So what Rabbi Tarfon did is he betrothed 300 women and now they're kind of married to him, even though they weren't really married to him, but they're technically married to him and therefore they're allowed to eat truma. And that's what he did to help solve the crisis of lack of food and uh, he would betroth he betrothed these 300 women and they were allowed to eat in a time of famine. The Talmud also says some very um, dramatic stories uh, where once he was he was in a field and he was allowed to eat from the food fruit or he was not allowed to eat from the fruit, but he realized he wasn't allowed to eat from the fruit. And basically the the watchman comes and beats starts beating him up. And you know, he's the most famous rabbi in the country, or one of the most famous rabbis in the country, but this guy doesn't know who he is, and he's beating him up. So he's like, he makes, he says this pronouncement, he's like, oh, I feel so bad for Rabbi Tafan is being beaten up. And of course, the watchman hears that he's beating up Rabbi Tafan, and right away he stops. And the rest of, for the rest of his life, he felt terrible about that episode. Because he said, listen, I used my Torah for my own benefit. I woe unto me, I made use of the crown of Torah. In fact, later on in Pericarvis, we're going to read that it's improper to use the Torah as a crown to have glory from or as a, a as a hoe to dig with. Don't use the Torah for your own benefit. And here Abitaphon is saying, don't hit me because I'm, I'm a great rabbi. And he felt bad for that for the rest of his life. Now, there's one, I think, very fascinating episode that happened with his grandchild, with his grandson. Uh, after he died... He left only a daughter. He didn't have any sons, but his daughter had a son. And the Talmud says, this is already several generations later, that the great Rabbi Judah the Prince went to visit this town where Rabbi Tarfan was, and he started investigating about his children. He asked, does he have a son? No, he doesn't have a son, but he has a grandson. But this grandson is not exactly following the ways of his grandfather. So Rabbi Tarfan's grandson is not exactly following the pious ways of his mother's father, of his maternal grandfather. So much so, the Talmud says that every prostitute who would charge two gold coins for his service, for her services would pay him eight gold coins for his services. And so this is a problem. The great rabbi's grandson seems to be going in a wayward direction. So the Rabbi Drew the Prince calls... Uh, meets this uh, this individual, and he says to him, "If you return, if you repent, I'll let you marry my daughter." Now, of course, Rabbi Judah the Prince is the prince of Israel, uh, and his he's the richest Jew and the greatest scholar. Obviously, his daughter is the most sought after bride in the country, and he reaches out to this wayward rants on Rabbi Tarfon telling him, if you repent, I will let you marry my daughter. And indeed, he repented. And according to one opinion, he actually married Rabbi Judah the Prince's daughter. According to second opinion is he didn't marry her because he didn't want people to say, oh, he only repented because of this uh, carrot that was dangled in front of him. But regardless, the Talmud goes on to discuss the idea of how important it is for someone to reach out not only to their own children, to help their own children, but to help the children of others. It says the Talmud, if someone teaches his friend's son Torah, 
they merit to sit in the heavenly academy. And the Talmud goes on to say, if someone teaches Torah to the son of an ignoramus, the son of an Amaaretz, even if the Almighty decrees a horrible decree against the Jewish people, that person, the person who taught Torah to the son of an ignoramus, is able to annul the decree. And that's why Rabbi Judah the Prince was so fastidious in trying to reach out and help these this wayward son. But just an interesting little postscript about his family. So let's let let's read about his teaching. He starts off with a day is short, the task is substantial, the laborers are lazy, the wage is great, and the master is pressing. One of the commentaries points out that there's five categories of excuses that people have why they're not studying Torah. Number one, they say, hey, I got plenty of time. I don't have to study Torah today. I could always have tomorrow and the next year and 10 years from now. When I retire, I'll have plenty of time, right? On Sunday or on Shabbos or sometime in the future, that's when I'll have That's the first excuse. Number two, it's like, well, I don't need to study today. I could always catch it tomorrow because it's so easy, or the amount that I have to accomplish is so minimal, it's no big deal. I'll just, I'll just do it sometime in the future. Uh, in addition, because people say, well, what do I really gain by studying Torah? What's in it for me? What's the upside? And the final excuse is, well, what's the downside if I don't do it? And in each one of these five types of excuses, Rabbi Tafun is telling us, no, the day is short. You can't rely, you'll do it sometime later. The work is substantial. It's not something easy. It's not something that you could just get overdone overnight. The reward is great. And the potential downside is also severe because the balabias, the master of the house, meaning the Almighty, he is exacting. He is pressing. He is not going to allow us to ignore his instructions. In effect, Rabbi Tarfon is telling us there's a certain degree of urgency that we have to have in our life. The task is great. The time to accomplish that task is short. You know, maybe if we were like Noah, we lived to 950 years old, we could take a few decades off. We have, we don't know how long we're going to live, of course, but we know it's not going to be, even if it was 150 years, it's still not enough time really for us to uh, take it, uh, be easy in our taking of it. Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah tells us something interesting. It says that when Moshe was in heaven for 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't sleep. And this is similar to, to, to the, the, it's similar to this idea that Rabbi Tarfan is telling us, that there's so much to accomplish and so little time to accomplish it. Moshe's up in heaven for 40 days and 40 nights. He wants to get it all, doesn't want to miss anything. He doesn't sleep. On one hand. On the other hand, he tells us that every little bit of Torah that you get is, is, is incredibly valuable. And he gives an example that quotes a, an analogy. Suppose there was a, a king that tells his servant, go to my stockpiles of gold and silver and booty and you have an hour to take whatever you want. Of course, during that hour, there's going to be a heightened sense of urgency because you only have an hour, but there's so much amazing stuff you could get. Whatever you could get, it's all yours. 
Similarly, the Almighty gives us a fixed amount of time here on earth, but every second that we study Torah, every second that we do mitzvos, it's like free gold. The reward is great, but the time that we have to accomplish that reward is very little. And therefore, we have to kind of live, according to our Bittar, we have to live with a sense of urgency to try to get as much as we can, to stockpile as much gold, so to speak, as we can, accomplish as much as we can before the time expires on us. And uh, this is the idea, listen, it's the one thing that we can't, you can't buy with money. You can't buy immortality with money. And you can't buy time with money. It's the one thing that is the great equalizer. Everyone is, li- every human lives with the same uncertainty of how much time we have left when no one knows. And also no one is, is going to be around permanently. And this is the one thing, it's the one resource that is almost like slipping through our fingers. And it's given to us by God with responsibilities, with a purpose. He's the owner of the house, so to speak, and he's pressing. What are we going to accomplish? I'm giving you life. I'm giving you abilities. I'm giving you gifts. Use it for the right purpose. But also know that there's a lot for you. There's a lot that he wants us to accomplish. And we don't have a, an infinite amount of time to do it. Moreover, we are inclined to be lazy, like he tells us. The workers, the laborers are lazy. Who's that? That's us. It's like the endemic characteristic of humanity is that we are lazy. Of course, some people are very lazy. Some people are only a little bit lazy, but everyone's lazy. In fact, Rabbi Yoda says that this is the human characteristic. It's almost as if like the Almighty created Adam out of the dust of the earth. You know, what is dust? Dust just settles and settles and keeps in the same place. Like the wind moves around. The, the rain moves around. The trees sway. The dust is just there. Unless you lift it up and it's kind of heavy to move it, it's very difficult for it to move. That's the human condition. We're most likely to kind of get in a lane and stay in that lane because we're lazy and we're not likely to be inspired to say, you know what? I'm going to change my lane. That's very difficult for the human because our most inherent characteristic is being set in place, set in the way we are, in the pattern, the mindset, the mind frame, the Weltanschauung is fixed. And we're lazy. But here we're told, once we know that we're lazy, once we know that that's what we need to overcome, we're halfway to the finish line to know that the time is precious, the time is short, the day, the day is short, the responsibilities are great. We're inclined to be lazy, but there's great reward waiting for us. Don't think that we're laboring in vain. And also, don't say, you know what, the reward, I'm going to opt out. That's not the only motivation. Because on the other hand, the Almighty, the Master, is going to be pressing. So this is like a, like a motivation. It's, it's on one hand, it's inspiring. On the other hand, it's a little bit scary. But this is almost like a clarion call to get our act together, make sure, to make sure that we're maximizing the time that we have allotted to us in this world to accomplish what the Almighty, the responsibilities that the Almighty gave us. Let's go on to the next Mishnah. Let's, let's look at the next Mishnah. He would say it's not our responsibility to finish the task, but we can't opt out of it. We can't withdraw from it. This is an important thing. Our world is very much results-oriented. What are the results? Give me the results. Is, is the project finished? Is it done? Can we move on to the next thing? Here we're told, no, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to worry about the results. We don't have to finish the job, but we can't opt out of the job. It's about the process. 
It's about the effort that we invested, given the abilities that we were granted. What did we do? How much did we invest? How much did we put towards the goal to do whatever it is we can to effectuate the change and the progress that the Almighty wants us uh, to do? It's not our responsibility to worry about the results, but the output let leave we leave to God. The input is our responsibility. Uh, there's an episode of the Torah which I think really underscores this point. A very, a very uh, favorite Rashi of mine. Uh, in the beginning of the book of Numbers, Moshe is told to go count all the Israelites, all the Jews, and count all the Levites. Counted the Jews is no big deal. Every Jew from the age of 20 to the age of 60 is counted. The Levites, on the other hand, are counted from the age of one month. So if there's a baby that's 35 days old, you got to count them too. What's the problem? problem is that those babies are not actually out and about. They're in their crib, in their tent, and not exactly accessible to Moshe. So, the verse tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, Moshe counted the, the Levites as per the word of God, like God commanded. So Rashi is asking, what does it mean as per the word of God? It's almost as if God told him the answer. So did Moshe count them or did God count them? That's the question that Rashi is dealing with. The, the verse seems to contradict itself. So Rashi says that there was a there was a dialogue between Moshe and God. Moshe said to God, how am I going to do this? I have to count every lever from the age of 30 days. Can I walk into other people's tents to know how many of these suckling babies there are inside? Is there one baby there? Is there two babies? Did she have twins? It's a hard responsibility. So what does God respond? The Almighty responds to him, You do your job, let me do my job. It's your job to worry about your responsibility and let God worry about his responsibilities. What did he do? Moshe went, did as much as he could, went to every tent, and then God told him how many babies there were in the tent. And that means that, Moshe, you all you need to do is what your responsibility is and you let whatever you can't do, you can't do. That's God's job. Don't worry about finishing the job. Worry about doing whatever it is that you need to do. I remember I once heard an analogy about a, a king. He made a contest who could climb the skyscraper within a certain amount of time. I don't remember the exact details of the story. Basically, you got to climb 100, uh, 100, 100 stories in an hour. But it takes a minute to climb each story. So most people just said, I'm opting out of it. And some people like, you know what, I'll try. And they run up 20 stories in 20 minutes. There's no way I can get to the top. In an hour. And the one guy who made it to the top, he said that he got to the 59th floor at the 59th minute and he got to the elevator there. <laughs> that's, the, that's the story. Meaning, you do whatever you can and let God worry about the results. But we cannot shirk our responsibility. Even though God is ultimately responsible for the results, we're responsible for the input. That is indeed in our hands. That's where our free will comes. Our free will comes not by determining the outcome, but by determining the input that we're going to invest. And therefore, we're told, if you study a lot of Torah, you get a lot of reward, meaning you're going to be judged by God in proportion to your efforts, not to the results. So if you study a lot of Torah, if you put a lot of efforts, you get a lot of reward. Not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, process-oriented judgment, not a results-oriented judgment. And finally, we're encouraged to trust God 
He'll pay us what we deserve, but we will not be able to see that in this world. Ultimately, God's reward and punishment is in Olam Abba. It's in the next world. And I think, you know, th- this this is a little bit frustrating for us to hear, to accept, because we're told that there's another world that we can't experience, we can't see. It's frustrating. But I think it is a logical extension of the idea of belief in God is that there's a certain degree of fairness. And it's not fair, the world that we live in today. Why? Because the righteous suffer, the, w- the wicked flourish, and certainly it's been like that throughout many instances of Jewish history, and world history, in fact. And if someone does believe in God and that God is fair, uh, it has to be balanced out in a world not of our own. Uh, regardless, we believe in the existence of the afterlife, not because of the logic, but because the Torah itself tells us about it in many, many, many places. And uh, here we're told that let the Almighty worry about the reward and punishment and tabulating the score. But ultimately, we're aware that it's not in this world where our efforts are going to be recompensed. Rather, it's in Olam Abba. And thus concludes chapter 2 of Pirkei Avos. It was a delight and a pleasure to study with all y'all, to, all, all of you uh, uh, together. And we look forward next time, next week, to chapter 3 and the very provocative teaching of Akavya ben Mahalalel.